Honestly, Liberty Chroniclers, I identify with very few Americans from the Civil War period. I really can't stomach the Confederates, of course. I can't stand the Union fetishists. And I don't really share the abolitionists' messianic assurance of their own righteousness, no matter what the cost. An abolition war did not also have to be a war for the Leviathan Union. And so really, the only people I care to identify with are the black soldiers, the slave strikers, or our current subjects, those many people in the North who saw the dangers of an endlessly powerful state and fought it with all available means. Historian Nicholas Mosvick joins us again to talk about conscription and the Constitution. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. Give us the need-to-know information about conscription in the Union during the Civil War, uh, whatever we need to know as a backdrop to your specific work. Uh, Well, the most important backdrop is just to understand basically uh, the setup before the Conscription Act or the Enrollment Act, which comes in March 1863. Uh, And that history is what we call the Militia Acts or Militia Bills. And those go all the way back to 1792 and 1795. So really the first uh, significant use of the militia uh, after the Constitution was ratified uh, was to put down the Risky Rebellion in 1792. So these were the first early acts that organized the militia when they needed to be called out uh, by the president um, for uh, national emergencies um, and the like. Uh, And so up until the Civil War, uh, the Militia Acts were the uh, sole uh, means of organizing the militia nationally. Uh, The militia were relied upon, and other than that, uh, the army was an all-volunteer force. Um, as we'll talk about during the War of 1812, uh, Secretary of War James Monroe uh, considered a conscription bill. It was put forth before Congress, uh, but it never actually passed because the war ended. Uh, so in 1863, we had yet to have a national conscription bill, right? Um, so that's kind of the basic backdrop, right? Is in 1861 and 1862, Congress passes militia. Um, So those are based on the previous militia bills. The idea is to not disturb the all-volunteer system. Uh, But even by July 1862, uh, the need for manpower is getting steadily greater. And uh, in fact, the 1862 Militia Act allows the president to essentially force the states uh, to conscript themselves, right? So if they don't meet the quotas that are given by the uh, the federal government, uh, they have to conscript men within the state. Uh, but the point there is that the state is still running the apparatus of drafting. The national government has yet to do so. So this bill is the first one uh, that creates a federal system of directly drafting individual citizens. Into the uh, and the reason they're doing this, um, so this is the other backdrop, right? is the war itself, right? So these are manpower needs. 
Uh, and why is the manpower need getting greater? Uh, well, it's really two reasons, right? So one is that volunteerism has dropped off. The other is related reasons, right? Why has volunteerism dropped off? Well, the war has gone on uh, for nearly two, two years at this point, uh, and it's going relatively poorly for the North, right? Uh, specifically in the Eastern theater, right? So these series of defeats uh, in Fredericksburg, um, Panthersville hasn't happened yet. That's uh, in May of 1863, but going back to 1862, right? Uh, second Manassas or second Bull Run, um, the Peninsular Campaign against Robert E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia, right? There's a lot of uh, military failures in the eyes of the North as well, right? So um, really reflects uh, this growing crisis for the Northern military. Now, another uh, part of that backdrop, an interesting part of it is uh, one of these threads of the the sort of long story arc that we've been telling on the show of the the history of locofocoism, this early brand of libertarianism, and and some of the more colorful, interesting, and overlooked figures from that movement. Uh, one of my favorites, and I certainly hope one of our listeners' favorites, is Abram D. Smith, that one-time short-lived president of the Republic of Canada who ended up being the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court justice that struck down or nullified the Fugitive Slave Act in that state, um, leading, of course, to the Supreme Court case uh, that uh, upheld the Fugitive Slave Act throughout the country. I wonder if you could you could say you know this this issue of jurisdiction of the the state and the federal government uh, comes into play very importantly in your work. I wonder if you could say a few words connecting the Fugitive Slave Act and the history of resistance to that, and then the resistance to conscription during the war that you cover. Yes, well, um, it takes a few steps really because it's it's complicated. Um, and the reason for that is that what happens in the 1850s itself is complicated. Uh, so as we talked about in the previous episode, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court's action of striking down the Fugitive Slave Act ultimately leads to this 1859 Supreme Court decision of Abelman versus Booth, right? And so not only does that upheld, uh, uphold the Fugitive Slave Act, but it strikes down the right of state courts to inquire into federal uh, and the uh, into the um, custody of federal prisoners uh, held under federal acts by writ of habeas corpus. Uh, and the reason that this is really important is it's the primary method by which individual citizens can contest being drafted. Now, why is this the case? Well, it goes back um, all the way to the War of 1812 and even before that, right, is uh, there's this history of cases, often the case in war that you have uh, young men, 16, 17-year-olds, who why or are pressured into volunteering or joining the army. And their parents would, is under their parents' rights, sue in their name for a writ of habeas corpus to be relieved. Uh, so there's this long history throughout the 19th century of states' courts uh, releasing prisoners by writs of habeas corpus from federal custody. And so that's the norm for challenging 
being held in the army or specifically being held under military justice, right? If you're trying to leave the army or if you're resisting being drafted or you're a deserter, any of those cases, uh, you're going to be held under uh, military jurisdiction, right? So the writ of habeas corpus is the means to get them into a state's court. Um, and then we're going back to the Fugitive Slave Act, right? So that's why Abelman's important. So the real connection to my research is that this is not only the way by which individual citizens uh, can contest their draft status, it's also that state courts are trying to resist during the Civil War the meaning of this 1859 Supreme Court decision. In other words, they don't believe that the Supreme Court and Chief Justice Taney in particular meant to entirely dislodge the claim of state court habeas jurisdiction. Uh, so that's a long-winded answer, but uh, as, I, as I began, it's complicated, right? There's a lot going on. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting to me to note uh, the political uh, allegiances here. Abram D. Smith, you know, this Wisconsin uh, judge who who originally nullified the Fugitive Slave Act, he was at the time a staunch Democrat um, who, in the intervening years, switched to the Republican Party, and he ends up, as as we'll see here in a few weeks, he ends up as a, a administration agent in the Sea Islands, working on the the Tax Commission. Um, and administering life for freedmen, and uh, as you say, you know many of the figures and ideas that you cover in your dissertation come from Democrats as well, uh, and you know they are, of course, in the position of being opponents of the administration, but many of them do not exactly want to join the peace Democrat or Copperhead side and be against the war. So they're in this they're in this difficult position of having to you know, fe feeling in intellectually, ideologically, politically uh, uh, necessary to defend um, the constitutional order as they saw it in the past and not let this, you know, Leviathan state creep on and on and on. Um, but they they certainly, you know, can't really be seen as, as sympathizing with the Confederacy either. Um, What's what's the political situation like surrounding these debates over the constitutionality of conscription? Well, uh, I think the best way of putting it would be uh, sort of putting off the inevitable, at least in terms of the congressional debates, which is to say in 1863 uh, in February, which is when the Conscription Act is debated, the Republicans have a fairly significant advantage. And part of the reason is they have what we call war Democrats on their side, right? So Democratic Party, as you kind of alluded to, right, is really split three ways. You have these peace Democrats, we've talked about Fernando Wood is really among them, right, who are openly sympathetic to the South. You have war Democrats who... Um, are essentially acting as Republicans, at least in the sense of supporting everything that goes to winning the war, right? And then thirdly, you have those in the middle, and that's what I call constitutional conservatives. Um, other have referred to them as loyalist Democrats. 
the point here, right, is that they believe in an older version of the Constitution, this antebellum federalism, right, this uh, kind of long-running constitutional traditions, and they want to uphold those but win the war if that's possible, right? And so they know that the Conscription Act is likely to pass. So what they need to do, uh, their mission, is to try to limit the extent of that power if possible and to get their objections on the record. One of the really important uh, points, I think, for uh, readers to understand is um, that in uh, 1863, politicians understood that citizens would read accounts of congressional debates in the newspapers. Newspapers traditionally uh, printed spreads of three to four pages of these debates. uh, And there's something that we historians use called the Congressional Globe. And this was a regular paper that had all these debates. Um, And congressmen could even edit those. They could work with the editor to preview them. So they knew very well that what they said in Congress, even if it didn't stop the act, was going to be heard back home, right? It was going to be heard uh, by everybody in the party. So they spent a lot of time solely on discussing the constitutional problems with conscription, right? Their sense that the major problem of what this did was to reorient federalism as they knew it. They They were taking power that had traditionally been with the states and giving it to the federal government. Um, And so they needed to get that down. And as we'll talk about, uh, the reason why it matters, why it's successful in some sense, is because they set the tone and the core arguments against conscription that would be used by constitutional conservatives uh, throughout 1860. So I, <clears throat> I'm sure you've done, had to do this plenty by now, uh, given that you're a, a graduate student working on your finishing up your dissertation here. Um, give us the elevator pitch, you know, the 30 second to a minute version of what your dissertation is about and what you argue. Yes. Uh, well, as I mentioned, constitutional conservatives who are these loyal Democrats who wish to uphold their version of the Constitution were ultimately unsuccessful in contesting the constitutionality of the Conscription Act. But the fight uh, in the battles that ensued over the course of 1863 were very close. And their constitutional arguments should be taken seriously, not as mere political invective, uh, but as well considered uh, in serious constitutional arguments against what they believe to be a new, novel, and uh, possibly disturbing expansion of federal power. Now, I imagine that uh, <laughs> my my next question was going to be, well, what, what made you get interested in this subject and what made you want to spend years researching and writing about it? Uh, I mean, you really have to care about a topic a lot to make it your dissertation subject. Um, and, you know, I, I, 
<laughs> as as I as I think of that question, though, I also think to myself, what could possibly be more important? You know, I mean, you could write you could write about nuclear war or something like that, but I mean, the, conscription is such a massive and horrible problem uh, that still hangs over our heads. That uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all that that somebody you know of of a legal mind and with legal interests would who who wants to be a historian would leap right into this subject. Uh, but but tell us in your own words what what made you want to research and write about conscription? Well, it's uh, it's really a few things. Uh, I mean, one is going back. I can remember when I was eighteen, waiting to the last possible minute to sign up for the selective services system. Uh, my parents were very upset with me because they, they thought I would get fined or arrested. Uh, but I had this, this internal sense that it was absurd that I needed to sign up for this because the idea that a draft could still happen at any time just struck me is obviously wrong, right? So, um, in other words, every 18-year-old has to learn that even though we don't have an active draft, you still have to sign up because there could be a draft anytime, right? As you say, it hangs over our heads. And uh, when I was an undergrad, I didn't research anything that had to do with the draft. It didn't come up again until I was in law school. I was a, a joint degree student at the University of Virginia, so I got a J.D., and a master's in history at the same time. And my advisor gave me a short article from 1967 called The Amazing Case of Needler versus Lane. And so this is kind of the centerpiece of my dissertation. It's a 1863 Pennsylvania Supreme Court case that struck down conscription as unconstitutional. And that surprised and fascinated because I think that goes entirely against what most law students and really most Americans probably think of, right? The idea that it's unconstitutional is just not where anybody uh, starts, right? And that's honest to the history, because as I found out in the 20th century, courts were not very willing to listen to the argument that conscription was unconstitutional. And frankly, in the Civil War, a lot of courts uh, were not willing to ultimately uh, side with constitutional conservatives. But there seemed to be a lot more space for this debate, right? Um, and, and it's not just the constitutional conservatives that had space, but supporters of conscription were making well-articulated constitutional arguments about why they were right. This was a serious debate with high stakes to it. And the last part is that, you know, going back to what I felt as an 18-year-old, it's the sense that this still matters because even this last week, uh, some uh, listeners and readers, I think, will probably have seen uh, that a federal district court judge in Texas ruled that the all-male draft was unconstitutional. Uh, and so there's a prospect here. Uh, at least the possibility that the draft gets opened up to all citizens, uh, men and women. Um, you know, my my hope would be that they would reconsider and go the opposite way and think about striking down registration in peacetime. Uh, but it's likely to be appealed, 
um, and it could reach the Supreme Court. And this is happening at the same time that there's a, uh, a ongoing um, uh, commission, national commission studying the future of the draft. So while there hasn't been a Supreme Court challenge of any sorts related conscription since 1981, um, the issue still uh, sits with us today. Hmm. And now correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that the courts uh, treated conscription, you know, during the war and in the decades uh, after it, especially World War One, World War Two, um, the court said, well, look, Congress can do whatever it wants to <coughs> raise, <coughs> excuse me, to raise and support armies and navies. They can do whatever they want. And, you know, states, states have no uh, jurisdiction to challenge that and stand in the way. So that's that. Sorry. I mean, is it really as simple as that? Well, there's there's an intervening moment there that's really important, which I hadn't mentioned yet, which is in 1872, the Supreme Court and Tarbell's case uh, essentially upholds Abelman and specifically rules that, no, what Abelman meant was to end state court habeas jurisdiction over federal questions like this, right? So it specifically rules that. Um, and in fact, uh, Justice Field, in his opinion, uh, in, which, in what I would characterize um, is dicta, also suggests that conscription is obviously constitutional. So by 1917, 1918, during World War I, there are no state court challenges. Uh, all these challenges happen in the lower federal courts and courts of appeals before they reach the Supreme Court. And what's really striking about those is one, a lot of the challenges are focusing on the 13th Amendment, which has now been passed. Of course, that's not available in 1863. And two, that uh, these are not long opinions. You know, there's not a hundred pages discussing the ins and outs of uh, Article One's. Uh, uh, powers over the, the militia, how that might affect citizens, uh, state court jurisdiction. These are short opinions because they treat it as fairly obvious that the federal government should have this power. Whereas I think in 1863, uh, there's still a sense that um, McCulloch versus Maryland, uh, these enumerated power doctrines, limitations should be seriously considered. Uh, and what is really allowing the federal government to have this power is the necessities of war, right? What nation states require of their citizens when the nation is in peril. Now, you uh, you also explicitly claim that, you know, this is a study of elites and their ideas, their constitutional theories, their different legal gambits to, you know, resist conscription. And obviously people on the ground make big contributions to the sort of practice of that and the implementation of that. Uh, but this really is a, a study of elites. Now, you know, on Liberty Chronicles, I'm going to have to ask you to justify that. <laughs> so can you explain to us what made you decide this has to be a study about, you know, people at the very top of American life? Yes. Well, I think the best way to answer that would be to say it's contextual and it's really a result of what I wanted my research to focus on. And I wanted my focus to be on constitutional arguments themselves. My sense was that in the historiography, 
and what previous historians have said, uh, they just really didn't give much gravitas to the constitutional arguments themselves. There was such a need to treat them as mere uh, politics, right? Laws, politics, arguments. No one really takes those seriously. This is really just all about politics. And so I wanted to focus on those arguments. I wanted to show that sometimes uh, Americans could take, uh, could start with the Constitution itself, right? In other words, it's possible that politics can follow constitutionalism, that their values were holding what it meant to them, and that they had to start with that, right? That there was this 19th century culture that um, historian Timothy Huebner calls uh, constitutional culture, right? These 19th century Americans were obsessed with the Constitution. It was in the papers. They talked about it all the time. Uh, that this really, really mattered for them. And it mattered that they got what the framers intended right. And so I'm starting with that. Uh, the people who talked publicly about it, uh, the lawyers who made these cases, the politicians, they're all elites, right? This isn't the purview of, um, uh, you know, workers or uh, women or African-Americans. Unfortunately, they're shut out from this debate, right? Just by the context of the time, right? That this is, um, this is really the purview of elites. Uh, and so it wasn't really a, uh, a choice to start with elites so much as to pick a, uh, a particular subject that in 1863, that work was really, for the most part, only done by uh, relative elites. And I mean, I think that's an important point too, and it it still is, right? Sure, you have legal advocacy groups that you know uh, take up pro bono civil rights cases and things like that, but you know, let's let's be frank about it. the The courtroom is is sort of a, a playground of elite people, anyways. They're the ones writing the laws and implementing the policies and running the system, and usually benefiting the most from however things turn out. I mean, I, I don't necessarily see a problem with, you know, choosing a focus like that. Um, and, yeah. I, and I may say one other thing, which is that it's not untrue that, uh, you know, soldiers and diaries and letters and, you know, that I've read a couple, uh, you know, that I've looked at, they do mention the Constitution sometimes. Um, they talk about the draft sometimes. But the likelihood of getting a sort of well thought out, well articulated design argument, um, you just don't see that as much, right? You just kind of see references to it. And that's just my own experience. I, I may have been missing something. Uh, but I think generally for individual citizens, their first thought is just to avoid getting trapped, right? Uh, the target on their back is to be forced into the army. And so it's kind of, you know, it's the job of these elites, right, these lawyers, to help them be protected from that, right? And these are the lawyers who have already started thinking about why conscription is unconstitutional, right? Or I mentioned politicians, but frankly, in 1863, 
Most politicians are also lawyers. At the end of your dissertation, at the end of your degree, if you you know are looking back on your years in graduate school and all, I mean, it's an immense amount of time spent doing the reading, doing the writing, putting all these pieces together, all this body of evidence, all this different literature that you've been wrestling with. Coming out of all of that, what would you really like to be able to say, this is my contribution to the field? I think the one thing that I would want to take away is that I showed to people who had otherwise not really considered it um, that it's possible that constitutional values sometimes outweigh political values. I think that's the most salient point. Mm -hmm. It's not just about conscription itself, right? And as I say, um, you know, part of the story is to let people know that sometimes the losers have something valuable to contribute. Uh, in other words, uh, the fact that they ultimately lost these cases, right? So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court case I mentioned uh, gets overturned uh, within a matter of months uh, because one member of the majority loses his seat in, in the election and is replaced uh, by a Republican nominee. And so it's overturned and the case never goes to the Supreme Court as constitutional conservatives hope. Right. So by 1864, um, their hopes for a direct constitutional challenge uh, fade away. Right. So 1863 really is the year in which this seems like a real possibility. So they're losers in this battle, ultimately. But I think historians rightfully want to talk about struggle, too. Right. They want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, again, kind of sort of resurrecting uh, not just losers, right, but, you know, people who valiantly fought back um, against Cleveland wrong, right? And that goes back to what I was starting, which is to reflect this 19th century worldview that I don't know that people in 2019 can exactly understand, right? This idea that people would read the newspaper and they would be interested in reading about constitutional arguments, right? Uh, whether or not the draft was constitutional, whether or not the income tax was constitutional, whether or not the national government could print legal tender um, to pay for the war, right? Whether or not the president could suspend the writ of habeas corpus. There's all these issues that are frequently appearing in the papers and are part of political platforms, right? So I think what I'm really hoping to convince people is that the fact that they're part of political platforms doesn't mean that all law or constitutional arguments have called this. It means that there was a real cultural value uh, to constitutional norms and traditions that citizens broadly, that Americans wanted to have upheld. And so that's how we understand the stakes of this battle, right? It's trying to get the constitutional constitution right and to uphold the values of the framing generation, even in the midst of our most perilous struggle, right? Civil war is our most intense and important uh, struggle that we have in American history, right? And so I think when you think of that way, you can understand how high the stakes are. And I think it's, you know, it's that to take away, right? This constitutional struggle in the midst of really our, 
um, ultimate uh, violent struggle. Nicholas Mozvik is a PhD candidate in American history at the University of Mississippi, and he holds a JD MA from the University of Virginia School of Law. You can find his columns on conscription in the Civil War at libertarianism.org. Thanks for listening. Liberty Chronicles is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Liberty Chronicles, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.